Oh, hi. I was on. Good morning. Um, as Randy said, you can flip to Daniel 4 this morning. And I'm glad that you haven't just learned the fiery furnace and the lion's den because we haven't gotten to the lion's den yet. So, so that's good. I just want to do a little recap uh, of where we've been so far because there's going to be some significant things happening here as we transition out of this chapter. But I do want to clarify something from last week because I think this is a message that we need to hear uh, every, probably every day, uh, and, then, and then clarify a question that I forgot to talk about last week that was in my notes, but if you watch me, you know that I don't really follow my notes very well, and sometimes that bites me in the butt a little. So last week, you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to compromise their convictions and their faith. They refuse to bow down to an idol no matter the cost. And when we get to kind of 16, 17, 18 of chapter 3, that's kind of the thesis for us and something that we should look at as well and remind ourselves continually. They say, our God is able to save us. Our God is able to save us from the fiery den. But even if he doesn't, and that becomes the key for us. This, this theme of God's sovereignty is all through the book of Daniel, and it's kind of the central theme throughout the whole thing. A trust in God who gets to choose what's right and wrong. A trust in God who chooses to save some and seemingly not save others. And so whatever situation that we find ourselves in, we might be thinking, God, you rescued that person out of that situation. Why aren't you rescuing me? You healed that person from that disease. Why am I not being healed of this disease? And you can fill in the blank however you want. But what they, those three men teach us is that there's a belief that God can do anything at any time. And he can do miracles. But he doesn't always do that. Because in his providence, in his wisdom, he's using whatever situation we face ultimately for good and for ministering to those around us. And so sometimes the best thing we can do is be faithful through a season of despair or hurt or disease or illness. And we can declare who God is by our trust in him despite that. And that can speak just as loudly to the people around us and to our own heart as if we were miraculously healed. And so God alone gets to choose that. And so I just want to remind us of that again. Our God is able to save us, but even if he doesn't, we will still not bow down. That's the theme of last week, and I just think it's important to remind us of that often. However, I got a few uh, phone calls, emails, people, and this is good. This is like the most exciting thing ever, is when people call, and they're like, you didn't touch on this. What about this? I love it. That means we're studying. That means we're actually looking and we're not just kind of sitting here in church and just hearing a few things and going, okay, moving on. But, but you're reading the text and you're going, oh, I hope he talks about this. And then when I don't, you're like, oh, that's not acceptable. And then you give me a phone call or an email and it's good. And it was in my notes last week, but I skipped over it. Some people asked this very simple question is, where was Daniel through all of this? you got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the only ones that don't bow down. So does that, is there an implication that somehow Daniel did bow down? Where was he? Why isn't he mentioned? 
And so if you do a little bit of digging into the kind of historical context of this, and if you remember back to the promotions that were given to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it's actually very simple, but it's something that you have to read a little bit between the lines to get there. And so I want us to think, oh, this is dangerous. I want us to think in context of our own government, but not with just, just in the theory of it. It's as far as we'll go, is when Daniel was promoted, he was promoted to the, to the palace itself to be the king's advisor, and that's where he stayed. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were uh, promoted to the provincial courts. So if you think of it this way, Daniel, sorry, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the provincial level, and Daniel's at the federal level. So it's like Daniel's in Ottawa, and the three other guys are out in the provinces. And it says the province of Dura is where the statue is set up, and all the provincial leaders go there. Now, it doesn't say it exactly in those words, because let's not forget this is a couple thousand years old. And so they had different terms for things. But that's what was happening. So Daniel is at the palace. The king commands the statue to be built, and he goes out to be that kind of inauguration of we're all going to worship and we're all going to bow down. And that's why Daniel isn't mentioned. That's why it doesn't say. But certainly we know from what we've read so far and what we're going to read in the coming weeks that Daniel does nothing to compromise his faith in God either. And so I guess that is that for for Daniel. Now, as we move into chapter 4 today, there's a couple of things I want to note before we read it because there's a few really interesting things. We're not going to get through the whole of chapter 4 today, but we are going to take a big chunk Uh, verse 1 to 27, we're going to talk about uh, another dream that King Nebuchadnezzar has, and then we're actually going to look at the interpretation of that dream, but actually what happens, uh, we'll save for next week. But as we start to read this book, you're going to notice, at least I hope you're going to notice, a couple of very unique things. This, uh, This chapter is unique in all of the Bible. It's the only time, well, I'm just going to read what a commentator says because this is clear. Archer writes this. This is the only chapter in Scripture composed under the authority of a pagan in all of the Bible. And so when we think about that, when there's only one time, one chapter in all the chapters of the Bible that is written this way, that's significant. And so we should pay attention. Uh, Joyce Baldwin writes this. She says, the king tells this story against himself. And that's a really unique perspective, too, that is not often in Scripture. And so this chapter is is very uniquely written. And as you're going to see, the introduction of chapter 4 actually writes more like a Pauline epistle in the New Testament than it does an old historical book or a prophet. And so that's very unique. The other thing that is really important to note is between chapter 3 and chapter 4, we have about a 30-year gap. So this is important because the first couple of chapters, the first three, are kind of in this linear sequence, and it's kind of like you see what's being built upon. But all of a sudden, King Nebuchadnezzar seems to act differently in this chapter than the previous chapters. And we'll just suffice it to say this, is 30 years is a long time. And we all grow and we all change and we all evolve. And Nebuchadnezzar is on his own process there. And and as you're going to see over the next couple of weeks, is he's not where he needs to be yet, and so God's at work in him. But he's certainly not the rageful, chaotic, throw everyone in the fiery furnace, kill everyone who can't do unexpected things. There's, There's been a softening here. 
of King Nebuchadnezzar. And so I just want to mention that so that we realize that when this change happens, you're kind of like, is this a different king that we're talking about? No, it's just that a lot of time has passed. So let's read these 27 verses together. It's a bit of a long one, but let's, let's do this. Verse 4 of chapter 1, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. This doesn't sound like the Nebuchadnezzar of the last few chapters, does it? Now, in verse 4, he kind of steps back. This, this first few verses are after the events of chapter 4, and he's writing about it. But now we enter into the actual event. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Does this sound familiar? Right? We're repeating this, except then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream. It's a little more reasonable than chapter 2, right? I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who is named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the vision of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The vision of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the vision of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree. Lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watcher, the decision by the word of the Holy One, so that so the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. 
the tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king. You have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reached to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time have passed over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the most holy, sorry, that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Okay, that's a big section. But as you can kind of see in the narrative, a lot of it is repeated. Here's the dream. The dream is repeated again. Daniel repeats the dream and then interprets. But before we get to the interpretation... Notice the beginning again, these first three verses. The king is talking from the past or from, from the future tense of this experience. And so what we know already is there is a moment where he chooses God is the most high. Now, I'm not suggesting that he confesses Yahweh as the one true God. I, I don't know that, and commentators kind of argue about that, and we'll talk about that a little bit less next week. But there's been a massive change in his heart. It's really interesting when you, when you read, it says, peace be multiplied to you. That's very Pauline language. It's almost how Paul writes all of his letters, is grace and peace to you. Those kinds of things. And and then he goes into this psalm of praise about Yahweh. How great are his signs, his mighty, his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So at some point, he's been humbled, and he's recognized that I am not as awesome as I think I am. And that God is in control, and that God is sovereign, and that he appoints. And that, yes, I'm king now, but... From generation to generation, his dominion endures. Well, mine will not. So I think it's just important for us to remember that as we enter into this next. Because today is not so bad, but next week is bad. Next week we see kind of his response to Daniel's interpretation of the dream. And it's, it's, not, it's not what we would hope for. In verse 4 we read, The king was at ease in his house, living in prosperity. What does it mean, and this is a rhetorical question, but what does it mean that he was living in ease and comfort? Well, on Wednesday at our men's Bible study, which I will second what Randy said, is you will not regret if you join that group. It is, it is phenomenal. Um, 
the vulnerability among the group, the willingness to share, the willingness to pray for one another is, is incredible, and it's just such a, such a good thing. But as we were studying, this idea came to us. Are we living in too much comfort and too much ease? Are we just sitting back, forgetting that we need to rely on God for all things? Are we trusting our possessions more than we trust the Creator Himself? Jesus warns us in Matthew 6, 19 to 21, He says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust, moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It seems like the king is just resting back and looking at his accomplishments. Historians tell us that at this point in Nebuchadnezzar's life, there was no real threat from any nation around. He had basically conquered the known world. He had the greatest, the biggest kingdom. Any other peoples and and nations that were not part of his kingdom posed no threat to him at all. And so he was basically going, man, I'm good. I've done it. I've accomplished. You know, I wonder, as we talked about this on Wednesday, is how often do we just sit back and live in our ease and prosperity? How often do we forget that God is in control? How often do we think we're where we are because of how hard we've worked instead of remembering that it's all in God's gracious hand? It can be so easy for us to go, man, I worked hard for what I have, and then cast judgment on somebody else and look at them and say they clearly didn't work hard enough. Their work ethic wasn't good enough. Their drive wasn't strong enough. They made foolish decisions. Did you never make a foolish decision? Right, we all have made foolish decisions, probably in the last 24 hours. That's just the reality of it. And so what it should do is it should cause us to come closer to God and recognize every day, God, thank you for what you have given me because I don't deserve it. I've not earned it. I'm not worthy of what you have given. And I'm not talking specifically about possessions, but everything. Your family, the health that you have maybe in this moment, maybe the lack of health that you have in this moment, and how it causes you to cling tighter to God knowing that He sustains you and not you. There's so much that we have to be thankful for, and I think in a a culture like ours, similar to the king, when we have as much abundance as we have, it can always be real easy to look at your neighbor who's got more than you, or a bigger house than you, or a better car, whatever it is, and go, man, they're good. But you got to remember, like 95% of the world is looking at you thinking the same thing. So we need to trust in God. And, and Nebuchadnezzar is not doing it. He's thankful for all that, or not thankful. He's basking in his own glory and his own goodness. So not unlike chapter 2 in the vision there, what happens is he thinks he's awesome and then he has this dream that really rattles him. And that's God's way in this case of getting through to him. Nebuchadnezzar, you need to pay attention. What you're doing, how you're living is not in accordance with God's will. Remember, we talked about this in chapter 2. The whole point is that Nebuchadnezzar, like us, has been created in God's image and he's been called to rule. And he's not ruling well. He's not doing what God 
would have him do. He's doing what he would have him do. And so this dream happens, and in the same as chapter 2 again, we have all the wise men come, but like I mentioned, this time he actually tells them the dream, so thank you to the, you know, a little more gracious than last time. He comes and tells them the dream, and it says that none of them can tell them the interpretation. And then it says, at last Daniel came in. Now, why the dramatic entrance from Daniel? If, if the king says there's like nothing too difficult for you and the spirit of the gods lives in you and, you know, you can interpret anything, why wouldn't he be the first that he would go to? I don't have answers for that. I, I read a whole bunch of different interpretations of that. I think regardless of the specific circumstances, I think it's simply the writing of this to show us this. The same as chapter 2 is that the one true God can do what no one else can. Everyone else gets a shot at it. They can't do it. And so the one true God working through Daniel then comes and he makes known to him what the dream was. Stephen Miller, the commentator on Daniel, writes it this way. Nebuchadnezzar's life had been observed by heaven and it did not measure up to the standard of holiness set by God. Therefore, this messenger had been sent with a word of warning to the king. A king should not be filled with pride, for it's not by his ability, but by God's permissive will that he reigns. And so that's the purpose of the dream. It's to humble him. It's to show him that he needs to submit to the one true God. And so through verses uh, 13 to 18, we kind of have him explain the dream, and we're not going to spend much time in there, though if you want to get really, really detailed, we could probably spend half an hour in those verses and just what these symbols represent and the tree and what it means and all these things. But Daniel kind of interprets what we need to interpret, so we'll go there. Verse 19, Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while. I find this really interesting. It's like he knows what the dream is. He knows what the interpretation is, but it's like he doesn't want to say it. Have you ever had to bring really bad news to somebody and you didn't know how to do it? That's the kind of mindset that Daniel's in here. It seems to me that Daniel actually really cares for his king, which I find very interesting. And he's not sure exactly what to say to him, but Again, this is a different Nebuchadnezzar than in chapter 2 because look what he says. King answered and said, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. It's as if he's saying, I won't hold you responsible when in chapter 2, that's basically exactly what it was. If you can't tell me, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) And now it's a very different response. And so Daniel says, essentially he says this, this is a tough one. This is against you. There's some problems here, king, that need to be dealt with. Now, I just want to focus on this. The dream is essentially not that different from the dream in chapter 2, as far as its interpretation. So, what that tells me is something very significant, that God could destroy Nebuchadnezzar and appoint a new king at any time he wanted. So, why doesn't he? I think the answer is incredibly simple. Because God loves King Nebuchadnezzar. God has created him in his image and he wants him to submit to him. 
He's trying to show mercy and grace. Remember, 30 years has passed. It's not as though there was this one instant and he didn't learn, and so then God did it again. God's been at work in the life of him, showing miracles through Daniel, through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's trying to show him, would you humble yourself before me? This is the perfect example of the mercy of God in the Old Testament. So often we try and make there be two different gods. The God of the Old Testament who's filled with wrath and vengeful anger and that kind of thing, and the God of the New Testament who's just filled with mercy and love. That's 100% our fault if we do that because the Old Testament and the New Testament are no different. Yes, there's moments of wrath in the Old Testament, but so is there in the New Testament. Just read Revelation and what God is going to do to those who do not submit to him at the end. And I don't say that to scare you, but to show you that God is consistent throughout Scripture. And there's mercy and grace and patience like crazy found here. And so this is what we have, is he's trying to get to King Nebuchadnezzar's heart. And he's going to do any and everything necessary to humble him. But it's Nebuchadnezzar's choice, ultimately, whether he's going to confess, you are the one true God. And the same is true of us in our life. So often we go, God, why would you allow this kind of situation to happen? And God's just saying, you just need to submit to me and trust me. I know what I'm doing. I'm at work in your life. I'm at work in the lives of those around you. I'm using you ultimately for good. So trust me even when it's hard. Right back to chapter 3 in the fiery furnace. This is the theme of the book of Daniel. So, Daniel says essentially this. All of this is happening to you, king, because you think you are more powerful or greater or better than God. And these things are going to happen to you until you confess, until you recognize in your heart and in your mind that God, the one true God, is in control. And so all of the symbols, the chopping down of the tree, but, but yet keeping the root and the stump and covering it and keeping it intact, God's showing there's some serious, there's some bad stuff coming. But there's still hope. The root, the, this tree stump can grow again. And he's going to hold that kingdom for him till a time when he is willing to confess that the Most High rules. But notice this, verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. Then there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. He literally says to him, this is the dream, this is the interpretation, this is what's coming. But perhaps if, if now you're willing to see, if now you're willing to acknowledge that the one true God is God and you will submit yourself to him, perhaps these things won't even have to happen. There's so much mercy. There's so much grace. And, and again, remember what we talked about in Jeremiah where the prophet uh, told them, you know, go and build houses, seek the welfare of the land and the people. That's what Daniel's doing here. Don't forget that, you know, 35-odd years before this is all the Jewish nation was brought into exile under Nebuchadnezzar, and yet Daniel's here going, I want what's best for you. I, want, I, don't, I don't want you to have to suffer. 
if we put ourselves in those shoes, perhaps maybe we would be like, finally, like, get this king out of here. He's responsible for the reason that we're not a nation anymore. But what Daniel understands is that Nebuchadnezzar is not responsible for that. God is. Nebuchadnezzar was a vessel used by God in ways that didn't make sense to them at the time. But Daniel was going to trust God. And so Daniel calls him to do that, to repent. And we're going to look at next week exactly what he does, but I guess the spoiler alert is he doesn't yet learn. He will in, in some way. But as I was reading these last few verses, I came across a quote from a guy named Miller. And this was very, very convicting to me, and I hope to you too. He says this. The king certainly had the power and financial resources to help others. Nebuchadnezzar might not have been treating others cruelly anymore, but he probably did what many people do today. He practiced an indulgent lifestyle and simply ignored the misfortune of others. Let me read that last bit again. He probably did what many people do today, practiced an indulgent lifestyle and simply ignored the misfortune of others. When I read that, I was challenged very deeply with, do I look for the needs around me or do I close my eyes to them and I only think about my needs? The issues that I have in my life, the things that I need sorted, the, things that, the help that I need, and I don't even see the hurt and the pain in other people's lives. In 1 John 3.17, John writes it this way. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? He finishes that section by saying this, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, a little bit of a pitch for what Randy alluded to. Next Sunday, our missions team is going to come and they're going to excuse me, they're going to present to us something that has been presented to them. And, and, and this ties in so beautifully because this was not a need that we as the church sat down and went, oh, this is something we want to do. The community came to us and said, here's a need, and no one is meeting this need. Would you be willing to do it? According to John, if we do nothing, then how does God's love abide in us? We may, we may not have seen the need, and we, we maybe have our blinders on a little bit, but when the need is presented to you and you can't do anything to ignore it because it's right there, how are we going to respond? And so the missions team came to me and, and a few other people, and we started, or I shouldn't say we, I take no credit for any of this, but they started to put a plan into place of how can we as a church family serve the Bow Valley, specifically Banff in this case. And they'll tell you next week the details. But suffice it to say this, is every single person in this room could help. This is not something that requires a certain unique skill set or, or specific. It, it just all you need is a willing heart. And that's what we're calling on from our church family. There are some that work really, really hard in this church, and I'm so grateful for them. This, this next Thursday, our board meeting will take place, and I'm so thankful for how much those individuals pour into the church. And this is not meant in any way some kind of a guilt. This is simply meant as, biblically speaking, the church is meant to declare Christ's love to the community. All of us as one family are meant to show the world 
we're looking beyond just us and our needs. Yes, we all have needs. We all have issues, 100%. But we are literally called by God to go and to make disciples. We're literally called to go and share our goods with our brother and sister. We are called to help. And so that challenge is going to be presented to you next week. And I really hope whether you're online or whether you're here in person that you heed that challenge and that you think and you ask, God, how can I be part of this? The way that the missions committee has designed it is so beautifully that the idea is that literally your whole family could come and be part of this. Not just one person, one here, one there, but like we could literally have the entire church family helping. And it would be amazing. So I just want you to consider that as we move forward. Next week, they will give you all of the details. So bringing it back to the text here. While we might not be king of a great and expansive nation, you are created in the image of God. And you are called to rule the way that God asked you to rule this earth with love and compassion and grace and mercy. And sometimes God uses events in our life to mature us and grow us. And sometimes, like King Nebuchadnezzar here, he uses more significant events because we've closed our ears and we're not listening anymore. And my prayer is that we will open our ears, that we won't have to go through some of what he has to go through, but that we will be willing to confess, God, you are the one true God. You are sovereign. You are in control. I'll trust you no matter what. Now, again, that doesn't mean that you won't go through hardships or difficulties. Don't hear me saying that but it means we'll have a completely different perspective. It means that when we're standing, maybe not in a fiery furnace, but when we're standing at the edge of something very significant that will cost us perhaps our lives, we go, God is able to save us. But even if he doesn't, I'm still going to follow him. still going to worship him. I'm not going to compromise because he is the only thing that matters. May we open our ears, open our eyes, and see what God is doing in our community, in our church, in our families, in our homes, in our hearts. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this passage here. And and it can be really easy to just kind of assume this is Nebuchadnezzar. It has nothing to do with me. But there's so many principles in here that we need to watch in our own hearts. God, would you guard us against an arrogant heart thinking that we deserve or that we've earned your mercy or your grace. May every day when we wake up be reminded that nothing that we have is from our own doing, but it's a gracious gift given by you. And may that build in us a gratefulness and a joyfulness and, a, and just an awe and wonder of how good you are. God, for those who are going through very serious difficulties and serious challenges and serious uncertainties, May they recognize that the only hope that they have is resting in you. That the outcome doesn't matter as much as the journey. And so would we cling tight to you knowing that you alone are sovereign. That you alone are in control. That you alone know all things. And that you are at work because you are merciful and gracious and you want our hearts to be turned towards you. So God, may we have tender hearts so that we don't turn and walk away and need you to do something so significant as what we read here. But may you constantly be tapping us on the shoulder, reminding us whenever we have turned around that we need to turn back towards you.
God, I'm really excited for what is coming here, what the missions committee is going to present to us next week. May we really search our hearts and minds and ask, what are you calling us to do? How are you calling us to get involved? How can we as Christians serve our community so that they see and that they know there is a God in heaven who loves them? That is why you've put us here on this earth, God. And so I pray that we have the courage to step forward and do that. Go with us today. Be at work in the heart of each one. Help them to know that you are with them, that you love them, and that even in the midst of whatever difficulty and challenge and illness, whatever they're facing, that you have purpose in that. So help us to remain faithful. We love you. Go with us this week. Amen.